Welcome to Evergreen History. I'm Jackie. Following the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, Americans of Japanese ancestry all over the country were forced to leave their homes behind and were incarcerated in what were formally called relocation centers, but by definition were concentration camps. Washington, having a large population of Japanese immigrants, was no exception, and thousands of Japanese were held against their will at the Puyallup Assembly Center, which is currently home to the Washington State Fairgrounds. Afterwards, they were further moved onto one of ten official government internment camps. First, we'll talk a little about the trends in Japanese immigration to the U.S. and Washington. Then we'll talk about the internment specifically in Washington during World War II. We will reach a little over Washington because it happened all over the country, but we'll mostly be talking about the Puyallup Assembly Center, which was also known as Camp Harmony. By the late 1800s, immigrants from Japan began coming to the Puget Sound region in considerable numbers. The Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882 barred Chinese laborers from entering the country, leaving a demand for positions like railway workers and farmhands. Rural Japanese may have seen coming to America at this time as an opportunity to improve their lives. Many were peasants in their own country who were becoming more burdened with taxes while losing land. Also, second and third sons in Japan couldn't inherit land by law. In Japan, the U.S. seemed like an attractive option as it was advertised as a land overflowing with riches. Workers were primarily recruited from rural locales in Hiroshima, Yamaguchi, and Okayama prefectures. The majority were occupied as loggers, railway, salmon, cannery, and agricultural workers. Both Seattle and Tacoma, which are still major ports, were the main arrival spots. Some students and professional workers also came, although not in as great of numbers. All around the country, racial prejudice against people of Asian descent began to grow. Between 1907 and 1908, a so-called gentleman's agreement was agreed upon by Theodore Roosevelt to stop all immigration of Japanese laboring men. Consequently, Japanese immigration was limited to women and children. Many of those women took part in arranged marriages and were known as picture brides, as only their photos had been exchanged before arrival. This policy continued until 1924 when the Immigration Act was enacted. It was also known as the Johnson-Reed Act and ended all Japanese immigration. Although these acts made it nearly impossible for more new arrivals, the preceding decades had an influx of enough people that significant populations were already established. Seattle's International District was a place for newly arrived immigrants, city dwellers, and those coming from out of town to feel more at home. In Seattle, there were companies who imported specialty foods from home, like tofu. There were Japanese-owned and managed businesses, which included bathhouses, hotels, restaurants, grocers, flower shops, and dry cleaners. Other communities were spread throughout the state. Ferry service began making Brainbridge Island more accessible in the 1920s. Immigrants from many Asian as well as European countries were employed by the Port Blakely Mill Company. Strawberry farms were started by the Moritani family in 1908 and produced 2 million pounds of fruit in 1940. Other agricultural ventures were on the rise as well. 
1930, the Japanese population in Seattle alone was 8,448. The Great Depression only added more fuel to the fire as white Americans falsely placed the blame for economic hardships on minority groups. To counter this, Japanese Americans ramped up efforts to increase their civil rights as well as expand their positive image. There was extensive volunteer participation, with the percentage giving their time to the Red Cross exceeding normal amounts. It was difficult for many to balance retaining their home culture in an era filled with hostility to those sought as foreign by the majority. Nikkei is a term referring to Japanese emigrants and their descendants who lived outside of Japan. Issei, meaning first generation, were the original emigrants. Their children would be referred to as Nisei, or second generation. It was especially during this time that Nisei were more often quick to assimilate in order to appear more American, even though many had already been contributing to their country. By 1940, the Japanese Americans in Seattle declined to 6,985. On December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor was bombed by Japanese forces. Immediately, the FBI began arresting citizens, such as priests, teachers, and newspaper publishers. The next day, the U.S. declared war on Japan. In the next month, thousands of Japanese households were subject to raids, although the FBI reported at the time that it found nothing sinister in these searches. Racism towards Japanese escalated. The Western Defense Commander John L. Dwight, Army Strategist Carl Benenson, and Assistant Secretary of War John J. McCloy convinced the President that exclusion was a military necessity. Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was president during World War II, signed the executive order 9066 on February 19, 1942. The executive act did not formally exclude Japanese Americans, but instead prescribed military areas from which all or any persons may be excluded. General DeWitt issued Public Proclamation No. 1 on March 2nd, which designated Area 1 as the western half of Washington and Oregon, the southern half of Arizona, and the western half of California. Area 2 was comprised of the remaining area of the states. Proclamation No. 1 also mildly affected German and Italian residents of Military Area 1. They were required to file residence with the post office, but nothing as extreme as forced internment. The case of Korematsu versus the United States was brought before the Supreme Court, but the Executive Order 9066 was deemed constitutional. Additionally, Public Law 503 was signed on March 21, 1942. This allowed courts to enforce Order 9066 and make convictions for violations of restrictions or orders with respect to persons entering, remaining in, leaving, or committing any act in military areas or zones. For the month of March, the policy was a voluntary relocation, which urged residents of Military Area 1 to leave on their own accord. However, as you may have guessed, civilians were not willing to uproot themselves from their homes and communities. The assets of Issei banks had been frozen, so even those that wanted to move in an effort to ameliorate the situation had a difficult time. Also, many states outside of the military areas did not readily accept incoming Japanese Americans. 
There were rumors of migrants being turned away at the border of inland states, being jailed and even beaten by mobs. Although several thousand people did leave the area one, it became clear that voluntary removal would not suffice to clear the region of the Japanese population, so forced removal went into effect at the end of March. There were 99 exclusion areas, and civilian exclusion orders were drafted and carried out. Being deemed a sensitive military area because of its proximity to a naval base, Bainbridge Island was the target of exclusion number one on March 24, 1942. Exclusion notices were posted all around on buildings, billboards, telephone poles, and other places in the public sphere. Even before the orders, Japanese Americans endured challenges. The Blackwall Ferry Line refused them passage until later the company said to allow anyone who could document U.S. citizenship. After Order Number 1 was issued, signs were posted ruling Nikkei had only six days to prepare for incarceration. There were 274 residents affected on Bainbridge Island. They had to register themselves pack their belongings, and sell or rent their homes, farms, and all possessions, save for what they could carry. In the rush, some were in luck to have neighbors willing to take care of their possessions. However, many were taken advantage of and had to sell their things for much less than they were worth. Instructions were given as follows. Provisions have been made to give temporary residents in a reception center elsewhere, evacuees who do not go to an approved destination of their own choice, but who go to their reception center under government supervision, must carry with them the following property, not exceeding that which can be carried by the family or individual. 1. Blankets and linens for each member of the family. 2. Toilet articles for each member of the family. 3. Clothing for each member of the family. 4. Sufficient knives, forks, spoons, plates, bowls, and cups for each member of the family. 5. All items carried will be securely packaged, tied, and plainly marked with the name of the owner and numbered in accordance with instructions received by the Civil Control Office. 6. No contraband items may be carried. The Bainbridge Review reported the conflicted attitudes of white Americans. The Navy and others who feared the presence here of Japanese aliens and Japanese American citizens breathed easier this week, for the island was cleared of every last one of its 274 Japanese residents in the nation's first enforced evacuation. There were others, though, who mourned at their departure. They included Caucasians who gathered at the Eagledale dock Monday morning and wept as their Japanese neighbors obediently boarded the ferry Kalakin for their last ride from the island for a long time a ride which was the very first step in the government's forced evacuations of them to the reception center at Camp Manzanar, which is located in Owen Valley, California. The Japanese themselves remained outwardly calm for the most part. None created any disturbance, although some cried when the actual moment came to board the ferry. For many days previously, the Japanese made goodbye calls to their Caucasian friends. Especially sad were the parting scenes at Bainbridge High School, where friends of many years were forced to part. The ferry set off for Seattle, and then they were routed via train and bus to Manzanar War Relocation Center. 
One proposed assembly center that never came to fruition was the Toppenish Assembly Center, meant to detain those in the Yakima or central Washington area. However, in a short amount of time, there were too many obstacles, like lack of firefighting supplies in the dry area. So the plan was abandoned, and some of the already-made infrastructure went to the Puyallup Assembly Center. Instead, the nearly 1,000 Nikkei from the central Washington area were sent to another assembly center in California, the Pinedale Assembly Center. After the Bainbridge Island removal, the forced internment of the rest of western Washington, as well as some people from Alaska, began at the end of April. The wartime Civil Control Administration set up a handful of stations to conduct medical screenings, facilitate sale or storage of property, and register families. They assigned five-digit numbers to them. As the hastily planned permanent war relocation centers were not finished, they were instead sent to the Puyallup Detention Facility, which was meant as an in-between center before they were moved further. The misleading euphemism for this center was Camp Harmony. The site had been home to the Puyallup Fair, which has recently been renamed Washington State Fair, and therefore covered a large area which had water, power, and sanitation facilities. Also, it was a central area. At the time, it was 43 acres with permanent buildings and large parking lots, which were also used to house detainees. Most of the housing areas were constructed after the fairgrounds were leased. Communal barracks were 20 feet in width and had differing lengths depending on the location. There were inner walls that divided the buildings into family sections. The parking area held the majority of the detainees, which each of the areas, A, B, and C, having their own mess hall, latrines, shower, and laundry. Area A was built for a maximum of 3,000 people, area B for 1,100, and area C for 900. Manned watchtowers faced the perimeters. Area D was that of the fairgrounds themselves and had barracks as well as 105 so-called bachelor apartments built under the grandstands. This division had a slightly larger population than that of Area A and additionally was the heart of the camp, having administrative offices, a community hall, and the like. The long barracks had windows on sides, electrical wiring, simple floorboards, and a wood stove in the center of each living division. Camp Harmony's total maximum capacity was 8,000 individuals, which made 50 square feet per person on average. The areas were fenced off with barbed wire so it would prove difficult to move freely between them. 850 Seattle-area Nikkei were brought to the Puyallup Detention Facility on April 30, 1942 by Motor March. There were strict procedures. They were permitted to use their private automobiles, however they would be impounded at the assembly center. The rest would be transported in vehicles supplied by the U.S. Army. The start was scheduled for 10 a.m. at the junction of Beacon Avenue and Alaska Street at the southern end of Jackson Park. Its route would go through Seattle and then continue south via Renton, Kent, Auburn, Sumner, and then the final destination of Puyallup. The maximum speed for private vehicles was set at 30 miles per hour, with buses and moving vans set by the accompanying military police. The Army furnished a wrecker truck to follow the last march unit. 
Female nurses and medical aid personnel would occupy the last vehicle in each march unit. Rations were to be served at Puyallup at noon or shortly thereafter. The ramshackle buildings of Camp Harmony were uncomfortably close quarters, with no soundproofing. Noise echoed from room to room. The roofs were not properly waterproofed and rain seeped into the living spaces. As refrigeration had not been set up by the time of occupancy, detainees' meals during the first three weeks were field army B rations, though later they improved. Early on, with lack of sanitary conditions, diarrhea was widespread. Spoiled food served in May caused disruption late into the night as detainees crowded to use latrines, so much so that reinforcements were called. Most of the medical care on site was made up of the detainees themselves. Masao Watanabe, who was a young adult at the time, described his experience arriving at the Puyallup Detention Center. They had a hell of a lot of nerve calling it Camp Harmony. It was a real traumatic type of living, where you're in the former stalls where the pigs and cows and everything else were. Temporary shacks, just the walls were so many feet off the ground, and families of six and seven were crowded into one little spot. May K. Sasaki recalled the intensity of living in the repurposed animal stalls. One thing I remembered was the animal smells. You know, that's how fairs are. You have your animal smells. We had one of the rows of stalls, so therefore the smells were greater there. And I remembered there were cots. And then we had the bare light bulb hanging from the ceiling. The walls didn't come to the ceiling, so you could see all the way across. If you climbed up on something high, you could see all the way to the other end. An unknown woman who was interviewed and only known as Miss D was able to describe the conditions in her area, which was Area B. She stated that she and her brother stuffed the mattresses with straw. Bugs would get into them and often they needed airing. An issue concerning privacy was that the latrines had 12 toilets with no partitions. There were also no partitions in the showers. The evacuations to Camp Harbini had been assisted in part by Jimmy Sakamoto, the 40-year-old editor of the English-language publication The Japanese American Courier. He and his associates from the Japanese American Citizens League, who were panned-picked by himself, were to serve as in-betweens for the detainees and the administrators. Although at first he was successful in organizing activities and keeping cohesiveness among the detainees, his undemocratic process as well as perceptions that he was too accommodating led to unrest at Camp Harmony. For example, he quickly complied with rules like a ban on books, music, or any media in the Japanese language. The strict self-governing style he created provoked the majority of the detainees. Even administrators were alarmed at his effect, and after several months, self-government was banished at assembly centers. Day-to-day -day life at Camp Harmony could be contrastingly grueling and dull. For some, there were many work opportunities. Skilled trades which were needed to keep the camp up and running, like barbers, cobblers, office clerks, food workers, healthcare professionals, and others, were put to work right away. It was said that there was job favoritism in assignments by Sakamoto in the inner circle of Japanese American Citizens League. Wages were split into three categories. Unskilled labor earned $8 per month and included dishwashers and cooks' helpers. 
Skilled workers earned $12 per month and included nurses, accountants, and cooks. Professional and technical workers earned $16 per month and included physicians, scientists, and teachers. The pay of $16 per month and $2,008 would have amounted to $212 a month. Families were given a meager monthly stipend of $7.50 in the form of a coupon book, which could be used to purchase items at center stores. Nisei teachers and volunteers set up a vacation school. At the onset, there were 16 teachers serving 312 students from 1st to 8th grade. A small library was also set up with books donated by the Seattle Public Library. Sports and recreation were set up, including ping pong, badminton, tennis, croquet, boxing, kendo, sumo, basketball, and softball, which was already a popular sport in the region. Women did crafts like knitting, sewing, and crochet. Older men enjoyed chess, go, and shoji. The recreation hall hosted dances. Area B even set up a small swimming pool for kids. Although there was no phone access, detainees could get news through AM radio, as well as English newspapers. There was also a newsletter, the Camp Harmony newsletter, in circulation. The content of the newsletter was censored, however. First-class mail was not, and the letter writing was the only real form of communication they had with those outside the camp. Curfew was fairly relaxed, although people were rounded and counted at 9 p.m., there was very little privacy, although Miss D recalled that there were some empty barracks that the boys and girls discovered and of which they took advantage. Visitors were sometimes allowed and white friends of the detainees even brought supplies for them. Well into the period Camp Harmony was used, a report sent on July 21, 1942, to Lieutenant Colonel Ira K. Evans documented the food areas and practices. The mess hall of Area D had massive lines with a bottleneck as people waited for the first in line to finish eating, but it was noted how the women who served the food took care to make the dishes attractive. The kitchens did not meet army cleanliness standards. The ranges were dirty in all but one of the four areas. Kitchen waste was either being sent for hog feed or the, to the city dump. In the time of scarcity, it was recommended that the fats and bones should be sold instead. Miss D., a former detainee, reported that the water was bad and there were bugs in it. Dust and dirt would get into the large open meat containers. Food was able to get in through the mail at the beginning, although later, under further examination, it would be confiscated. Less than a hundred detainees were able to leave the camp early, most of which were able-bodied men. Some enlisted in the military, while others went back to work as farmhands, replacing many former workers who had been drafted causing a labor shortage. Only three university students were able to participate in the student relocation program. The army stringently opposed this on the grounds of national security, and the students were subject to documenting financial means and FBI tests. When the time came, many objected to leaving Camp Harmony. This was not because they were enjoying their conditions, but they did not want to be even further distanced from their homes and split up from their groups. The transfers out of the Camp Harmony began in early August 1942 and lasted until the camp's closure on September 12th. Most went to a Minidoka War Relocation Center located in Idaho. The trip was by train and lasted 30 hours. 
A small amount were sent to Lake Toole in California. The site of Camp Harmony was used as an attachment to the Fort Lewis base as a training facility until the war ended. The Puyallup Fair resumed in 1946. It was not until January 2, 1945, that the exclusion orders were finally ended as the Supreme Court ruled that loyal citizens couldn't be lawfully detained. Some Japanese did return to their original homes, while others struggled, having little resources and possessions left, and fearing anti-Japanese retaliations. Many nonprofit organizations set up hostels to facilitate the return to their homes or to new locations. Over half of Bainbridge Island's pre-war population returned. Other communities, like Eatonville, Washington, which had a small population of 40 to 50 Japanese, saw none returning. Reparations were slow to come and insignificant. On January 1, 1948, Truman signed the Japanese-American Evacuations Claims Act, which paid a grand total of $38 million. However, it was only a small fraction of the income and property lost over the years of internment. Decades later, President Ronald Reagan signed H.R. 442, acknowledging the unjust incarcerations over 110,000 Japanese Americans over the country and offering payments of 20000 per person incarcerated. If you would like to do more research on the internment of Japanese Americans, you can visit densho.org, that's D-E-N-S-H-O dot org, Thanks for listening to another episode of Evergreen History. You can email us at evergreenhistorypodcast at gmail.com with any suggestions or comments.